0: Welcome to the How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your
1: host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of the How of Business. My guest and friend, David Barnett, is with us today. Welcome, David. Hey, how's it going, Henry? Great to be back. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm doing well today, and thanks for taking the time to be back on the show So what we're going to focus on today is what we're entitling build versus buy. So if you're thinking about investing in a small business, you essentially have two options. You know, you can build your own from scratch as as I've done, as David has done, including perhaps even a franchise, go build a new franchise location, or you can buy an existing business and that might include a franchise as well. So those are basically our two options, build our own with somebody's help perhaps, or buy an existing business. And David Barnett is an expert on the topic of buying and selling small businesses. That's what he does for a living now is is provide that guidance, that education. And we'll talk more about that for those of you who may not know David. We're going to deep dive into this topic of build versus buy. If you want to receive more information about the Howa Business, including the show notes page for this episode, and you're going to want to go there because we have a special download, special offer on a special guide that David is making available for my audience. And if you want to continue, continue to support the show, including joining my Patreon membership, where you'll get discounts to my workshops and be able to join my monthly group coaching session, just visit thehowabusiness.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, I encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let me tell you briefly about David Barnett. David Barnett has been working with small businesses for over 20 years. He's helped them grow. He's helped entrepreneurs buy and sell them, and he's helped people finance them. David is the author of over seven books about small business transactions and local local investing. He's the host of a very popular YouTube channel with hundreds of videos, literally hundreds of videos about buying, selling, financing, and, and managing small and medium businesses. You can learn more about David, including all of his books, his courses, his other resources to help you buy and sell a small business at David C. Barnett with two T's at the end, David C. He lives, let me see if I don't butcher the name of the city. He lives in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Not too bad. Uh, he's been on a, a, a guest on, on my show several times. If you go to the archives, archives page on my website and click on buy, sell business, you'll see, I think, three different episodes. We've done webinars together. He's my go-to resource uh, for buying and selling. You and Mike Finger are my, my go-to knowledge base and resources for this topic of buying and selling a business. Uh, so look at those episodes if you want to learn even more. About buying and selling a business. So, with that said, David Barnett, welcome back to the show.
0: Welcome. I, do you know if it's the fifth appearance? Do not I get a jacket when I appear five times? You do times? not. No, it I works? know
1: this is the fourth, so you just get a pin, a little pin that ah, I will, send, okay. a little lapel pin that I will send you sometime in the future. Right. Perfect. When I get it made. <laughs> ah. In the meantime, I'll send you a special graphic, like your graphic when I promote the show. Will have a special badge on it. Okay, <laughs> that sounds so, good. Sounds but good. You're not quite a number five, but you're getting there. I think it's only you and a couple of other people that have been on my show this many times. So that, that speaks to the the wealth of information that you always bring and you are very sharing of, you share that information, which is what's great about what you do. Um, but let's get into it. You know, I thought I'd start with this question. Why? Let's start with that high level. Why should I consider buying a business, an existing business? And we'll del- delve into the details versus building my own at a high level. Let's sure. begin with that.
0: Yeah so so basically in order to have success in business you need a product or service that people want you need to be able to deliver the product or service in an executable fashion and you need to have enough customers to to pay for the direct costs and all of your overheads right and so when you start a business you don't have the customers and you may have kinks in your systems right you you may have problems with your product that you know need to be addressed and worked out for the market to fully accept it and then you have to find those customers. And for most people, when you open a business, if people are already consuming that product or service, then presumably they're dealing with someone else who's serving them, right? And so, in addition to making the offer, you also have to convince them to leave the known, uh, the known uh, commodity of the current service provider and come over to you. And and so, these are the big hurdles that people have when they start a business. When you buy a business, the Previous owner, the seller of the business, has worked out the kinks in the product and service delivery. They already have customers, and there are employees there who already know how to do the work. And so, you you may have to invest more money in the moment you buy a business rather than starting one, but the next day you start making money if, as long as is it's a good profitable business.
1: Yeah, great. So, so let's start to unpack that, and I want to start with the last point you make because that's something. I'm sure you hear it more than I. I see people making the mistake of thinking that, and I want your thoughts on this, that they're going to buy a business that has not been profitable, that's failing, and somehow they're going to turn it around. So what do you say to people when they're looking at a business that's not profitable now?
0: Well, you know, people get attracted to these things because they think they're going to get some kind of extra special deal. Mm -hmm. And really the best deal is to acquire a business with a cash flow that can afford to pay for itself. So... Even though you may end up paying more dollars to buy it, if you can borrow some of that money and the business is able to, to pay that debt off for you, then that's actually the low-risk route. Um, you know, the, There are statistics floating around, but there there is an organization out there of professionals who are turnaround specialists, and they are very, very proud of their success rate. And I don't have the exact number at hand, but I believe it's somewhere south of 20%. Uh, and and they are really proud of this. That's their success, success.
1: rate is, is less than 20%. Yes. And they're experts and, at that.
0: And they are experts at it. So, you know, if you are an expert in a given industry, if you've got 30 years experience in a certain kind of thing and you see this operation and you can see clearly that what the mistakes are and what needs to be addressed, then then maybe this could be an exception. Maybe it's a deal mm-hmm. for you. Um, If you're already in that industry, if you are a business owner in a given industry and you have a failing competitor, maybe there's a way to salvage their inventory, their equipment, their customer list fold them into your operation, make them a branch location, perhaps. Maybe you can look at the way they're running their business and remove a lot of overhead. If there's duplication with your own business, there, there could be options. And so really, I guess the answer is, it depends on who the buyer is, mm-hmm. but in general, if you are looking to buy a business, which is going to be an investment and become your job by going there every day to work,
1: it's far less risky just to go and buy something that makes money. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. Thank, thanks for clarifying that. And Good perspectives there on on a business that may not be profitable. All right, so, so we've talked about some of the advantages, the obvious ones. You know, it's existing clientele. We can measure that. We can look at the financials, and we'll dive a little bit deeper there as to what to do during due diligence. Um, you don't, you're not, you're not having to go see if you can take market share from someone else. That business already accomplished that. By and large, it's a profitable business, ideally. Uh, so, so my time to cash flow is immediate, ideally. What else? What else do we maybe not think about that's an advantage? We'll talk about the disadvantages in a moment, but what else could fall in the category of an advantage of buying an existing business? Well, just to be able to look at the track record and
0: also financeability. So Mm -hmm. you know, there are various programs and, and sometimes there's government economic development agencies out there who go out of their way to try to help people start up businesses. And this is really required because it's so hard to get a business started. When you talk about an existing business with a track record that has a history of profitability, there are lenders willing to make loans on that. They, they view that cash flow as an asset. And now, you know, you have to qualify too. I mean, right. they're going to examine the buyer. They're going to examine the way you manage your own finances. They're going to look at what your habits are and they're going to look at your work history to make sure that there's some kind of, um alignment between the the experience you have and what the business does, but it's much easier to obtain loans and to get capital for something that's already functioning and making money.
1: Absolutely. That that's been my experience as well, David. I've you know I've bought and sold businesses of my own and helped client, not as many as you have, but but that's what I've seen that that especially for a first business, mm. it helps tremendously that there's a real financials there for that lender to look at that's been my experience, yeah, absolutely the other thing that comes into play uh, and it's come into play two times that I've bought a business is seller financing well
0: and and that leads into the financeability of buying a business. So in addition to bankers liking the fact that there's this established cash flow, mm-hmm. um there's another whole category of lender, which is the seller. And, and this is something you don't obviously get when you start a business because there is no seller who, <laughs> who can do financing for you. And the, the vendor financing is great because it provides a lot for the buyer. Not only is it a source of financing, but it, it helps to align the interests of the buyer and the seller in the same direction. It gives the seller a reason to want you as a buyer to succeed. And that then opens the door to their desire to be willing to coach you, give you advice, you know. If you call them asking about the client that maybe was there a few years ago that potentially you could get back, you know, you can hear the backstory. You've got this connection with history through the seller. And um, you know, today, especially in this environment of rising interest rates, um, you know, loans at the bank are typically for Americans, especially under the SBA program, they're going to be floating variable rate loans. Mm-hmm. And so with a seller, you can negotiate anything. Right. Anything the two of you can agree to. Right. So you could have a longer term, you could have a fixed rate, you could have a rate that appears to be low today. you know, you could lock it in at seven percent interest or something like that. It really is whatever you negotiate. And a lot of the times over the course of the negotiation, this back and forth between the buyer and seller will sometimes see a lot of things and and these different things could be uh, the structure of the deal. asset sale versus share sale could go back and forth during the negotiation. Um, and the amount of seller financing, and in particular, the terms of the seller financing. Mm-hmm. I've seen things go back and forth where people will, you know, the seller will want a higher price. And the only way the buyer is willing to meet that higher price is to have a greater degree of seller financing. Right. And the other key thing that you can't get from any other source of credit is that you can put performance terms or conditions on the seller financing. So you could have various uh, mileposts or uh, performance requirements. That could you know, cause part of that note to be clawed back. Um, a good seller note is always subject to offset in the case of a material misrepresentation or an undisclosed uh, lien or liability. So if you buy the business and it turns up there's some kind of problem which really should have been dealt with by the seller, you ha- as the buyer have the right to offset those costs against what you owe the seller. So it, it kind of also acts as a, as a warranty against all the things that were told to you in the lead up to the sale as well.
1: Yeah, you touch on something there that I want to highlight. I think it's sometimes people think that because it's you can structure whatever you want, you know, that's legal, which which is pretty much pretty much whatever you guys agree to. Get an attorney involved here to draft this, right? Agree to the principal mm-hmm. terms, and then get an attorney because there's all of these clauses that have to be properly executed, and agreed to and signed to to make sure that all of that is enforceable, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: T- typically, a team to buy a business is going to include an attorney, uh, an accountant. You you need advice on how to structure your affairs. Sometimes you need to create uh, an entity to be the vehicle for the acquisition, whether you're doing an asset or a share sale. Yeah. Uh, you may need to have an intermediary um, entity created that will later then maybe merge with the company that you're buying. And so there's, there's all these kinds of tax strategies and initial setup things have to be done correctly. That's where a CPA is going to come into play. Exactly. And then depending on the nature of the business, you're going to have a whole host of other people too. Yeah. You could have uh, mechanical specialists if there's a lot of machinery in the business. Uh, you know, I, I had a client who bought a, a restoration and repair business, one of these uh, companies that goes out after flood or fire mm-hmm. to, to restore buildings. And he did a whole whack of financial due diligence to make sure that all the numbers and statements and everything he was provided were accurate. But with that purchase, he got 10 vehicles and he never did any mechanical due diligence. Wow. And it turned out that two of those vehicles actually had some pretty expensive deferred maintenance Mm. that a visit to a mechanic shop would have uncovered. So really the, the types of due diligence that you do um, should cover all the major areas of potential problems in the business.
1: Yeah, when it comes to that, such a great point, I look at it as almost like buying a physical property. You got to remember to do those inspections as well as the financial inspections. Um, all right, but th- the point here is, from an advantage perspective, and to me, this this is up high on the list because again, in my experience, that's that's what I've been able to do. That flexibility potentially, Uh, Being able to negotiate and structure something that's a win-win is huge as opposed to going through the more structured and um, perhaps even more expensive regimen of a bank loan or an SBA loan, right? Um, yeah. You know, and the, and the SBA, for together. example, is not going to care if the business doesn't do so well two years from now. I still got to pay that debt. Right. There's they're not going to agree to any stipulations related to, you know, a downward uh, performance or some some undisclosed issue that affects my my performance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. W- once you sign with, an, with what we call an institutional loan, so something from a bank, then, yeah, mm-hmm. you have guaranteed it personally. You owe the money. It's got to be paid back. Right. Often these things go together believe it or not, a lot of uh, lenders don't want to make a loan unless they also know the seller's making a loan Mm. because that's a huge indicator for the lender. They understand all these aspects that we're discussing. Mm. And so when you meet a seller who out and out refuses to finance any part of the transaction over at the bank, it raises a red flag for them. They start to wonder what may not be disclosed or what does the seller think is wrong with the business or with this particular buyer. Yeah. And and you know because the in order for a seller to be willing to do seller financing they have to know that the future prospects of the business are good. Yeah. And they have to meet the buyer and and feel and agree that the buyer is going to be a capable operator. And so that vote of confidence that a seller can give a give to a buyer is is a great uh advantage to a buyer like it can it can let someone know hey this this person knows the business and they believe in me.
1: Yeah, and it can be a great advantage to the seller as well. I get it. You know, as a seller, having sold a business, that uh, ideally I would love all my cash at the table, and then I walk away and never have to worry about it again. I understand that motivation. I've been there. I think though you touched on it. Uh, there's many ways to arrange this such that it is beneficial to everybody, including perhaps me paying a little bit more of a premium total price because you're making this accommodation. Often, what what sellers who are adamant against it. If it's not because they're not bullish on the business anymore, it's because, they, you know, they want that cash. They need that cash to go retire, to go do whatever it is they want to do next, right? So if you can understand what is really the challenge, uh, often you can work something out to make that happen for them.
0: Usually it's just simply ignorance. So a, a lot of people who put a business up for sale, they may have started the business. And they could have started the business decades ago. They've never mm-hmm. been involved in a business transaction before.
1: Yep, good point. And they
0: honestly just don't know that don't this is them. normally how things go down. And so when they approach selling the business, they think it's like selling any other big thing they may have sold, like an RV or a house or a car. And and so they imagine that on they're, they're going to make a deal and they're going to get this big check. And so it really, um, this is where it's important that people's expectations are correctly set. So if somebody goes and visits with a qualified business broker, that broker is going to explain to them, hey, you know, this is normally how deals go down. You're going to be expected to finance part of the transaction. And for sellers that are really informed, they'll understand the difference between, uh, you know, you gave an example, Henry, if you were buying a business for me and you gave me a down payment of your own savings and asked me to finance the rest, that would mean that I would be able to put a lien on the business. Um, I would have a guarantee from you and if for some reason you didn't pay me i could take the business back right that's a very different position to be in if uh, versus for example if you put some money down then borrowed from a bank and then had me hold a note behind the bank mm-hmm. and so i know that because the bank is ahead of me in the priority my my options if something goes wrong in your business are quite limited right so sellers will often you know agree to small amounts of seller financing if they know that the bank is going to require it. Mm -hmm. But if you have a significant or substantial down payment and oftentimes you can get a seller to finance the balance. If they see that you're the right operator and they see that what you're putting down is significant uh, and and it's a material amount for you that you wouldn't want to lose.
1: Agreed. Agreed. All right. So we've touched on, as we've been talking about this, some of the disadvantages of buying an existing business, like hidden things that we don't know about, that we don't want to cover until later. You mentioned the equipment example, it could be other things that, again, we, we have got to try to cover in that contract and or uh, loan agreement. But nonetheless, there are things that can happen. What else have you seen that could potentially be a disadvantage to buying an existing business?
0: Well, it's impossible to get to know the business as well as the seller knows it in any sort of due diligence. Um, I keep pointing out to people that that businesses are are not, you know, real world things. You can't mm-hmm. actually take a photograph of a business. You know, you could have all of your plumbing trucks lined up with all of the plumbers standing beside them and take a photo and I'll say, No, it's a photo of some vans and some people, right? Or if you take a, a picture of your flower shop, I'll say that's a photo of a building. It a system is or sorry, a business is a system. Mm-hmm. And what it is is an orchestration of people and capital in a place with systems controlling the choreography of how these people interact. And the goal is to have these interactions occur and produce a positive cash flow at the end of the day. And because it's simply a system, it's extremely fragile. And so um, it's hard to get your hands around. It's hard to fully analyze everything that's going on in the business. And you really have to get into it to fully understand it. And and so one of the things that um, that I've seen people have a challenge with is they'll have an idea of what it's going to be like to be the owner and operator of the business. They'll daydream about it. Then they'll get into the business, and then within some period of time afterwards, they'll realize I don't like this. Mm. And here's here's the issue with businesses as an asset class: they are highly liquid. So uh, you know, I used to be a business broker and I had some files that were on my desk as long as three years. Yeah. Where I had multiple, you know, attempted transactions that that didn't go through, and finally they were sold. So those those were cases where sellers took three years to sell their business. If the new owner decided after six months, they six months that they didn't like it, it could take them equally the same yeah. amount of time to sell and it. So
1: I, I just wanna go you said, I think I heard you said they are liquid. I think you were saying illiquid, illiquid, illiquid. sorry, not as liquid as we would like to the, for them to be when we want to get rid of them. Yeah.
0: And there, and there is a spectrum. So for example, a business that requires an owner with some kind of technical certification, you know uh, some kind of dentist office or, you know um, architecture firm, that's going to be highly, highly illiquid because not only do we, is there a smaller pool of buyers, but those buyers have to be uh, qualified in a certain way. But at the other end of the spectrum, you can have things like small sandwich shops, convenience stores, pizzerias, which with would have a much wider potential audience, right. and they would certainly be more liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not talking about something as liquid as a publicly traded stock, where right. you can just make a decision and execute the order, and it's it's gone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Excellent. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor, Relay. Relay is an online banking and money management platform for a small business. As a small business owner, you need banking that's truly built for your small business. No more fees, no minimum balances, no more bookkeeping problems come tax season, and no more branch visits to complete basic banking tasks. Now you can take control of your money with Relay, an online banking and money management platform that puts you in complete control of your cash flow. First, there are no account fees, no overdraft fees and no minimum balances, which means you get to keep more of your hard-earned money. And Relay is the official banking partner for profit first, so you can set up multiple checking and savings accounts and automate their percentage-based allocations using smart transfer rules. Relay also allows you to make unlimited payments via ACH, wires, or checks, earn interest on every spare dollar with Relay Savings Accounts, provide secure, read-only access to your accountant and bookkeeper, and speed up bookkeeping with reliable bank feeds that sync directly into QuickBooks Online and Xero. Best of all, it takes less than 10 minutes to apply online and it's absolutely free. And as a special offer to the Howa Business listeners, sign up for Relay using the link on the show notes page for this episode, and you'll also get $50 added to your account once you fund your new account. You can find the link to the show notes page in the description for this episode. Relay customer deposits are FDIC insured through their partner bank, Thread Bank, member FDIC. Please see the show notes page for this episode at thehowabusiness.com for more details. All right, so let, let's talk about the other question that comes up a lot. I'm sure you answer it a lot. Um, I know you answered a lot is 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 it more expensive? Is it generally speaking, I know there's a lot to that, so we'll break it down. Is it more expensive for me to buy an existing successful business because I'm paying the owner a premium for it versus why don't I just go build it myself? What's been your experience there?
0: Well, it's a great question because the the answer is hard to define because we don't know what precisely will be the success rate of your startup. And, but we do know that the current business is successful right now. That isn't to say that's a guarantee that it's going to be successful forever. All right. small businesses have this fragility that I explained before, you know, mm-hmm. things can happen entirely outside the control of the owner. Right. The business owners like to think that they are in control of their destiny because <laughs> they make decisions all day long. But, um, you know, I've seen restaurants that have closed, unfortunately, because city governments took longer than expected to replace sewer lines right in front of their parking sure, lot, Right, sure. things that are completely outside of their control. You know, the the big pandemic and all the all the rules that happened uh, with respect to that it hurt a tremendous number of businesses, completely unforeseen. Um, and so, I always, when we're looking at a business purchase. I shouldn't say always. I sometimes look at a at a deal and I'll I'll stop and I'll think if there's anything inside of me that's that gives me pause about whether the value is there, I'll ask the question. What would it cost to start this? If you bought the equipment, you bought the material and then you took that extra amount of money, let's say there's another half a million there, yeah. you know, could you fund a 2-year startup towards break even with that money? Right. And and it can be a good benchmark to just measure the sanity of a deal that you might be getting into. Uh, the number one benchmark is to make sure it truly cash flows after all the expenses have been put back into to a forecast. But to your to your point, Henry, like sometimes it can be too expensive. And yeah. and uh, what is often lacking is empathy on the part of the seller, uh, which is kind of funny to me because most business owners are keenly aware of the interests of their customers, right? So as a business owner, we think about our customers all the time, what they want, what they're willing to pay, what kind of service they demand. So that's an exercise in empathy, we're thinking about them. But for some reason, when we come to sell our business, all we think about is ourselves. right? So I'll give, you a, I'll give you an example. There was a little uh, uh, coffee shop, muffin shop that was for sale once back. This was over 10 years ago when I was a, a business broker. And I analyzed it for the woman that owned it. And I came back and I said, uh, your business is probably worth between sixty dollars and $75,000. And she said, no, 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 I need $100,000. <laughs> I said, oh, in that case, all you have to do is institute a two coffee rule. Every customer (laughs) that comes to the counter has to buy at least two cups of coffee. That should increase your sales substantially and your business will become worth a hundred (laughs) thousand. And she looked at me and she said, but my customers don't all want two cups of coffee. And and then shortly after she drew the conclusion herself, The, the buyer of her business is also a customer. And this person is being asked to pay money to acquire something. And what they're acquiring is a cash flow. And so it's got to be something that makes sense for that buyer or else they're not going to do it. They're going to weigh right. um, this, this opportunity versus something like starting their own or just maintaining their money in the bank account and going looking for a better deal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's been my experience. You know, it's interesting because I, I just think it's like having been a realtor, a residential realtor, it's that em- it's such an emotionally charged transaction, but the same thing happens with our business. We, you know, we likely, mm-hmm. like you said, gave birth to this, we've nurtured it, it's been a part of our lives, and by golly, it needs to pay off now, even though I might be completely unrealistic on what I think this might get. This is the number I have in my head, and sometimes yeah. that reality, um, it takes a while for them to process that. So speaking of valuing a business, the the simple formula that I have typically used for most businesses is some multiple of an average of, you know, owner's benefit that, that bottom line, once we kind of take out all of the owner's benefits that are added in there, is that the norm? Is that what you recommend or, or tell me about how you go about helping somebody value a business?
0: Yeah. So we use what are called notional cash flow levels and and notional simply means made up so you know on your tax return it comes down to a net income number because that's the government what the government needs in order to calculate what taxes you owe and so we know that there's certain decisions that went into how your business operated that don't necessarily have to be made by the person who buys it right so we back things out to get to this level of cash flow called seller's discretionary earnings which is the amount of money available to an owner operator that works full time in the business. And we get there by adding back taxes, interest, depreciation, and amortization. So basically all of the bills that needed to be paid for the business to function have been paid. The SDE is the leftover money. However, the buyers should not be confused that this is somehow the money that goes in your pocket. Right. And this is one of the big problems that people have is they'll see a business advertised for sale with an SDE of you know, $100,000 and they think if I buy this business, I'll get $100,000. It's not true because the depreciation and amortization represent things wearing out, the capital equipment investment and you're going to have to buy stuff for your business yeah, equipment to to retain machinery, some of your earnings there's no doubt that's that's going to cost money um you will have to pay interest uh on any money you borrowed to buy the business that was added back now we, now it's going to come out of your pocket um you're going to have to pay the principal portion of any loan payments which is you know actually out of your profit right it, but it it affects your cash flow um, and you're certainly going to have taxes if you're making money at this and so so, the scenario that the buyer is going to have is going to be very different. What their take home is not going to be that seller's discretionary earnings. But we use these notional cash flow levels because it's the best tool we have. Mm-hmm. And with that tool, um, you know because I work in this industry, I subscribe to some private databases of transactions that have already happened. I can go and look and see what the business sold for as a multiple of those of that seller's discretionary earnings. I can also see what it's sold for as a percentage of its annual sales. Mm-hmm. There are several different methodologies for arriving at a price, and they're all very interesting to look at, but they're all just guideposts. Because at the end of the day, you have to actually build a cash flow analysis to see what kind of money will be available for you. And you need to factor in the true expenses that you have. And one of the biggest ones that people forget, Henry, is the value of their own time. Right. So they 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 actually forget that that SDE involves them working fifty
1: hours a week. Right. So let's and talk so about that for a moment, might, because because one of the yeah. things that I usually do is I say to test that is okay. Add in then if you were to hire a manager to run this day to day, is that mm-hmm. and what is the going rate for that manager and plug that in? Is that fair?
0: Yeah. And so and what you've done when you do that is you've moved from SDE to normalized EBITDA. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we have a different name for that for that notional cash flow right. but and basically the difference is, is that if you're going to be an owner operator you're typically looking at SDE and if you're doing a strategic acquisition you typically look at normalized EBITDA right um, but I've seen so many people Henry will make this mistake they'll see a business that has a $200,000 SDE and it's available for sale for $800,000, let's say. And they'll go, wow, it's a 25% rate of return. Mm. But it isn't a 25% no, rate of return. No, right? Right. You you've and just that completely
1: would, discounted your labor to zero. <laughs> precisely.
0: and Or, or worse and because the,
1: a, the opportunity cost is gone as well. You can't go do something else. You're stuck running this business for nothing.
0: Exactly. And, and, and that example I just gave uh would be four times sde would actually be a a incredibly overpriced small business mm-hmm. the the overall average across all industries is about 2.3 times okay so that $200,000 sde business should really be worth about 450 and that those averages change by industry sure so a highly competitive industry with few barriers to entry like restaurants would have an even lower one And a business like septic pump cleaning, like septic, you know, septic tank cleaning with those pumper trucks would have a higher one because there's greater barriers to entry in that industry and also, you know, higher things like capital costs, like buying that equipment.
1: Yeah. Same thing, uh, you know, I was in the car wash business. And so in that kind of business where we own the land, we built the business, we have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, which depreciates nonetheless That's a different valuation because there's that component plus an assets component that we bring into play as well. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and land brings in an interesting, um, an interesting issue. So when we evaluate businesses, we only want to evaluate the operating business. Mm -hmm. And so companies that own their own real estate, they're actually in two businesses at the same time. Right. They are in the commercial property business and in whatever business they happen to be in, let's say dry cleaning. They just happen to be their own landlord. right? And so when you look at the financial statement of that dry cleaning business, part of that profit really belongs to the building. It's what gives the building its value. If we asked a commercial property appraiser to look at the building, they're going to look at what people are paying for rent in that area. They're going to calculate what the costs for the building are. And they're going to figure out using a a cap rate based on the local market, what the building is worth. Well, if we want to isolate the business activity from the real estate, what we end up doing is putting in what we call imputed rent. And so this is we're gonna add an expense. And I've seen a lot of people, Henry, who thought they had very profitable businesses. Mm. Then when we normalize for real estate, they get surprised. Yeah. Their business isn't nearly as attractive as they thought. Uh, once you take out the fact that the real estate holds certain value, right. um, there there is a, a category of businesses like what you're describing, like the the mini storages, the motels, the special care homes, uh, car washes, you know, purpose-built facilities for yeah. industrial reasons, where you've kind of got business and and um, and real estate mixed together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there's just slightly different metrics that are available yeah. that we can look at in databases to tell us how to how to treat those.
1: Yeah, well said. And in a qualifying point that you're making there in the car wash business is a perfect example. Those purpose built businesses are not very valuable. In uh, the bank, you know, the bank told us so, right? It's just like, yeah, it's collateral. That's great. But uh, what are we going to do with this la- this piece of building? Not the land, the building is not worth anything other than another car wash, right? And if you couldn't make a car wash work there who, you know, we're assuming somebody else will. So we got to be careful with those purpose built uh, properties and what the real value is of that building from a buyer's perspective, the rule of thumb that I've always used when I'm evaluating a business is I want my return after all these adjustments that we talked about my return on my cash investment in particular to, to be somewhere into three to five years at most, what, what what do you say to that and how similar is that to your guidelines it's a rule of thumb obviously
0: yeah it depends on the industry so the riskier the business the faster you want your money back um and and so I, like that range you gave
1: I, is per, in perfect alignment with what i what i think too yeah i think that's a great point the risk of the business and the risk of that includes the risk of the market or the industry that the business is in you yeah? You mentioned some that are more volatile than others. Again, going back to the car wash industry, another example of what might happen. A municipality might have a knee-jerk reaction in the case of a drought because they think we consume too much water, right? Whether that's true or not, that could impact my business and I have no control over that. Any other business that's highly regulated or could be impacted by either local or federal government action is falls into that category. But it goes beyond that, you know, a business where the barrier to entry is low, and I my competition could increase wildly. Well, that's another thing to look at as well when wanting to get that money back sooner than later, right?
0: Absolutely. There, there's a whole array of different risks. What, you know, when you talk about government rules, you know, we call that regulatory risk, you know, the the rules could simply change. And, um, you know, there's no greater example of regulatory risk than what happened in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, All of a sudden there were these, uh, you know, all the issues related to the lockdown. Nobody foresaw that, you know, people who bought a business at the end of 2019 probably didn't have that in their business plan. Um, (laughs) I can tell you going forward, though, like if I was going to sign a 20 year lease in an expensive location. I probably want to get something in there. I'm going to that, have a clause you know, kind in there of, about that, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, some some kind of relief, you know, built in. Or at least try if, to negotiate if, if that. that right? You may again. not
1: get it, but you're going to try to negotiate that and then see if you yeah. can get what you can get there. All right. The big question I always get often, I'm sure you get it all the time, is where do I find a good business to buy?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So let's let's think about the, the world of business sales and the journey of a business owner when they decide to sell. Okay. so when someone says i you know i've decided i want to sell this business I, I can no longer operate it anymore life conditions are or my situation is such that uh, i am now motivated to sell the very first thing they're going to ask themselves is do i know anyone who would like to buy mm-hmm. and so this is why you see you know a ford dealership being sold to the ford dealer in the next county mm-hmm. right or or some other industry auto group uh, operator across town So a lot of the times business owners, know other business owners, they've they've met people through different associations, they have a network. So they they try to exercise that network. It's really hard to tell exactly, but we know that probably four out of five businesses sell without the help of any kind of intermediary Mm -hmm. to find uh, the buyer of the business. Hmm. And so that one out of five who can't find a buyer for their business, they might end up going with someone like a business broker who might have a network of buyers. Mm -hmm. This is important. So a business broker uh, earns a a commission on the sale of the business and they're highly incentivized to sell the business as quickly as possible because then they get get paid sooner. So a business broker that is established that has a a list of buyers and people who've done business before, if they know someone they think is interested in that business, they're going to go straight to that person. And so I talk with business brokers all the time, and I know that many of them have listings that never get to online websites. Mm. If the broker doesn't know anyone who is a potential buyer, then they might put it on to one of these online marketplaces. And if it's a good business priced well, 100 people will inquire on it in the first week. And so there's a big rush of of, um, competition between these buyers who want to get in there and get that business. And so this is I, I get the comment all the time, you know, Dave. When I go on this website, it seems like everything's junk. Yeah. And and what is happening is they're looking at the picked over leftovers. Yeah. And and so if you're serious, like I, I run a group coaching program for people that are buying a business, and one of the thing, first things we work on is what exactly do you want to buy? If you if you think about going to the mall, uh, you know, you, there's two ways you can shop. You can look at what's on display in the windows and try to figure out what you'd like to have. Or you can go in there with a list, like you might go to the grocery store. And when you go in with a list that says, here are the items I need, you can get in and out quickly and get exactly what you need. And so if you figure out, I want a business, what kind of business? Let's say I want a machine shop somewhere in upstate New York. Well, once you've made that decision, you just need Google or the yellow pages. You can find them all. And then it's a matter of creating relationships, networking, finding out who owns these places, talking with those people, so that when that personal event happens in the owner's life and they think, who do I know that might like to buy my business, you're actually on that list. And so you can actually get a chance to go in there and and discuss and talk about a deal before you end up competing with all those other people. And so, so that's kind of how the landscape or the ecosystem works.
1: Uh, brilliant. And and I agree with that. That's been my experience as well, but thanks for laying it out. So if I'm following you correctly, um, and it's what I've done as well, is you start by defining your criteria. What What is the type yeah. of business that I'm looking for? And you may have a very clear idea or you may be open, but, but that's, that's a challenge. You need to narrow that down. What types of businesses fit what I want, my lifestyle, what types of business can, can I envision myself being in day in and day out, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, and then narrow that down. You're going to have to do some analysis of yourself and some research and and visit businesses and and then identify those businesses that fall into that, that meet that criteria or that industry and get to know those people, be in the circles that they're in, whether it's a chamber of commerce or a networking group or whatever, you start to connect you know, buy the owner a cup of coffee and and ask them just to learn. I know your business is not for sale, but I'd love to learn more about the industry. You're going to find that most business owners, if you approach them the right way and at the right time, are more than willing to share and talk, right? We loved, We mm-hmm. love to talk about business. Build those relationships over time. And then you're in the right position when one of those does come available. So it requires patience here, david is is part of this. you got to be patient in this approach and not expect it today. I decide to buy a business tomorrow. I'm going to find the right business. I might get lucky, but that's typically not how it works. Is, am I getting that right?
0: well, yeah, and 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 to to really highlight patience, this this is a key thing. that the owner of a profitable business unless they're being motivated by something like illness or, you know, something really cutting their timeline short, mm-hmm. the longer they delay or hold out on selling the wealthier they become because they that's a right. profitable business. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. So, so, so time is on their side. Uh, the only point of leverage a buyer has in the negotiation is a willingness to not do a deal. And mm-hmm. so you engage yeah. with the seller, you learn about the business, you talk about the business, you present the offer that is going to be workable for you But if that's never going to be accepted by the seller, you have to have the willingness to actually disengage and back off. And I've seen instances before where people have made offers and the seller says, no, I want more. And the buyer just has to say, well, I understand you want more, but it's not going to work for me. Uh, Perhaps you can find someone else that will do what you wish. And then that seller might go talk to two or three other people and end up coming back
1: to you. That's right. You have to be able, you you have to be willing and able to walk. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot fall, as it applies to any real estate, you cannot fall in love with the business. I mean, you want to fall in love with the business, then you got to put that aside. And then this is a business transaction. Then you got to be prepared to walk because to your point, that's your leverage. All right. You put together, as I mentioned at the outset, a great uh, 100 page, I think it is, starter guide. Tell tell me about that because we're going to make that available to all of my listeners to download for free. But tell me about what's in that. So I've got I've got uh,
0: these two short eBooks. Uh, one of them is a is a bestseller of mine on Amazon. Twenty one stupid things people do when trying to buy a business. Another one is called Twelve Things to Do Before You Consider Selling Your Business. And so I put these two together with a third book that has not been published on widely on Amazon or anything like that, which is simply called Buying versus Starting a Business. And I put all three of these together, and it ended up being a 100 page PDF. And so I, I call it a starter guide to buying and selling businesses. And it's going to give everyone an initial, an initiation into this world. Some of the ideas, some of the frameworks, some of the things to think about. Um, and it's, you know, if you're curious about this stuff yeah, just download it and, and take a read and I'm sure you'll learn something. And if you learn this isn't for you,
1: then that's got a value in itself as well. Agreed. Thanks. Thanks for making that available. So just go to the show notes page for this episode at thehowabusiness.com. You'll see the link right in the description wherever you're listening to this episode. It'll take you directly to the show notes page, and then you'll see the link to download this guide. I encourage you. All the stuff that I've read from from David is is really full of actionable information, so you're you're going to get value from it. All right, so that's one way to learn from you. Uh, how else should people engage with you? And and when you know, I often get the question of when. When should I contact somebody like David? if I'm in the process of thinking about buying or selling a business. So tell us about that. Sure. So if you decide this is something you want to do, then I've
0: got some education products that take a while to consume. And so time is on your side. If you engage as early as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I also do direct consulting services with people who've found a business that they want to buy and they want help to analyze it, make up an offer, et cetera. So for the education components, as soon as possible, for the direct consulting engagements, you have to have that target identified first. Um, and you know, the best thing I can say to anyone is, is you know, sign up for the podcast or the YouTube channel or, or come over to my blog and sign up for my email list because there's a wealth of information there that's just like publicly available. I think I've got over 600 videos on my YouTube channel now, yeah, and those are largely generated by questions in the comments from people just like the people in your audience.
1: Yeah, know I I love in particular that just rang a bell episode you released recently about the survey that you did of your listening audience, and that was there was so much, so many nuggets there of, of uh, what people are asking. Because uh, you know what I find, David, is when we hear that others are asking the same questions, it makes us feel like, oh, it's not just me that doesn't know this, right? <laughs> so yeah. don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid to leverage David's resources. So the podcast and all this information, David C. as in Charlie Barnett with two T's at the end. Dot com, right? Uh, The YouTube channel, what's the, do I just search for David C. Barnett or what's the YouTube channel? How do I best find that?
0: Yeah. If you, if you look for David C. Barnett, small business on YouTube or on any of the podcast hosting apps, I'll I'll come right up. Um, it, it, you know, it's, uh, I I guess I've got, uh, if you put small business, there's, there's a strong link in the algorithm between me and, and that topic.
1: Agreed. Agreed. All right, let's wrap it up with this last question. What, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation that we had about the evaluating this decision between building my own business from scratch or buying an existing business? What's a key takeaway?
0: Yeah, I, I would say um, evaluate your motivations. So why is it that you want to do this? Uh, and, and the reason why I say this is is I meet a lot of people who think that business ownership or small business ownership is sort of a a a certain or quick path to wealth and riches Mm -hmm. and when you read all the studies and look at the actual data small business owners work really hard and and many of them don't earn any more money Mm -hmm. and so really understand what is it what are your motivations what are you looking for and it's what's interesting to me is i have a lot of conversations with c-suite level executives and big companies that want my help because they want to leave their $300,000 job to buy, you know, the fishing village in uh, the fishing uh, lodge in Colorado or whatever. Right. And because they're looking for some kind of lifestyle change, even if it comes with a decrease in their income. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those guys have certainly considered what they want in life and they're looking for a whole overhaul of what their day to day looks like. And so think about what the future looks like. Think about what success looks like and think about what you would like to be doing day in and day out. And buying a business should really be part of a leveling up move. You know, if if you're driven by a desire for freedom, for liberty, for wanting to have control, more control over things, and with that comes greater responsibility, responsibility for your life, your own income, and the responsibility of the people who are going to be working for you, if that's something appealing to you, then this is probably a path that, that you want to look at. And then it really is a question of, you know, do I want to try and build something regardless of the risks? Or do I want a more certain path, even though it could still take just as long to find the right thing, but maybe it's going to be less risky. Maybe I can stay in my job while I look for the opportunity and then execute and move straight into something that makes money.
1: Yeah, great advice. Well said. Thanks for sharing that. Tell us, uh, again, where you want us to go online to learn more.
0: Uh, davidcbarnett.com is my blog site. From there, you can find all the different places I am and, and links to books and courses and my email list and everything.
1: Wonderful, David, as always, thanks for the conversation, for your insights, for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for this uh, this 100-page-plus guide that you're going to share with my audience. Again, go to thehowabusiness.com, the show notes page for this episode to get that consume all of the content that David offers for free to help you learn about this and then engage him at the right point in time. So he can help you with this. Thanks for coming back on the show and spending time with me again. No problem, Henry. Great to see you until next time. Absolutely. This is Henry Lopez. My guest again was David Barnett. I release new episodes every Monday morning. You can find the show everywhere you listen to podcasts, including my YouTube channel, as well as at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links,
0: and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.